Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. So if you're a guest with us this morning, maybe you snuck in a little bit late, you missed my introduction, I'm Josh, and uh, along with the team, we lead here together uh, at Activate Christchurch. You're so welcome, we love having guests with us. I've got some friends from up in the North Island that have come to hang out with us this morning, which is great. Uh, if you're watching online at home, or wherever you are, you are also welcome. Uh, it's my privilege this morning to be bringing uh, an Easter message on Easter Sunday. And it is a privilege because I think Easter Sunday is the most significant day in the history of Christianity. In fact, I think, whether you believe it or not, Easter Sunday is the most significant day in all of humanity, in all of history, because it's on this day that the greatest miracle was ever performed on planet Earth, right? It's on this day that the greatest victory was ever won in the heavenly realms. It is on this day that the greatest sacrifice was poured out for you and for me, because It's on this day 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ saved the world. And ever since then, people have tried to wrap their intellect around exactly what that means. Theologians and philosophers and scholars have tried to unpack it, and they use fancy words like justification, sanctification, or transubstantiation. But really... What it boils down to is this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus himself defined everlasting life in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he said, this is life eternal, that they, meaning us, would know him and know his father who sent him. See, a lot of Christians think that eternal life starts when they die and go to heaven. Now, I believe in heaven. I think it's a real place, and I think that if you're a Christian, that's where you go. But that's not when eternal life starts. Eternal life starts the moment you start a relationship with Jesus Christ, because Jesus said eternal life is knowing me. So you can have eternal life right here and right now. And the, the truth is, let's be honest, the truth is it's a wild story. I understand it. I can't tell you the number of times I have lie, lied, laid, lay, I've been in bed. And, and my mind's just been going, am I crazy? This is your pastor talk. I mean, Christian, well, I was like, this is, it's fanciful. It's extraordinary. It beggars belief. And I try and wrap my head around it, and I can't. And then I think to myself, what's, and I've said this before here, what's more logical that there's a supernatural, all-powerful, all-knowing being that created the universe and then by extension created me and I can understand everything that he's done? Or is it more logical that I lie in bed and go, I cannot wrap my head around that? So I take solace in the fact that actually that's the most logical position to hold. I think that when you discover that someone has given their life to save yours, the only appropriate response is to want to give your life to them. I think if someone says to you, hey, you might not realize this, you might not have heard this, but someone died saving your life, I think a normal response is to want to know more about that. In fact, if I can be a little bit cheeky for a moment 
and I can because I have the microphone. I would say, and I'm speaking to perhaps the people in the room or the people watching online that maybe would say they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe if someone asked you in a private moment, hey, are you a Christian? You'd say no, or, or I don't know. Let me challenge you with this. I think that if someone comes up to you and you can tell that they have an authentic conviction that what, they, what they're telling you is the truth, they believe it with every part of their being, as I do, whether it's in church or it's at work or it's at the gym or at the super, it would be weird if it happened at the gym. But if someone came up to you and said, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but I'm, I'm fairly confident, like convinced that someone died saving your life. And you go, ah, it's nice. And then carry on with your day. Something's wrong with you. Like, <laughs> that's not a normal response. It's not a rational response. It's not a reasonable response. A reasonable response would be to say, what? Why? Like, I've got questions. I'd like to understand why you said that. I didn't even know that my life needed saving. What are you talking about? Who is this person? When did this happen? That's like a normal response. You're not going to find too many other churches on a Sunday morning telling people that if they don't want to know more about God, there's something wrong with them. (laughs) Just me. (laughs) That probably didn't come out quite the way that I'd intended. But you get... (laughs) You get my point. I honestly think like, I, I, I'm an intellectual person. I'm not someone that just blindly follows stuff and doesn't explore more. Like I, I have questions. I want to know how this works. And I just think when I sit down and think about it logically, that an appropriate response to finding out that information is to go, I'd like to know more about that. You talk, you, you talk to the person that brought you to church or you come up and see me and say, that's a pretty bold claim you've made there, mate. What, what, you got any evidence to back it up? And I'd say, yeah, actually quite a lot, which we're going to look at this morning. Who here remembers, uh, and if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you won't remember it because you didn't hear me say it, but who here remembers a couple of weeks ago, I said, when you read your Bible, you've got to read it with curiosity, right? You've got to read it like a detective on a mission to get to the bottom of something. You've got to find out the facts. If you read your Bible with curiosity, it's a really fun book to read because there is so much in there that makes you go, why is that in there? Why does the Bible say it like that? And so I was reading my Bible this week. I was reading through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them are written by disciples of Jesus, two of them by followers of Jesus, but not necessarily disciples, and they all tell the story of what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And they all pick out different things. But a couple of them picked out the same thing, and I read it this week, and I was like, I I swear that's been added since I last read the Bible. Have you ever, like the Bible's a weird thing. You read it, you read it, you read it, and then one day you read it, you're like, that was not there last time I read this, like for reals. So that happened. So what I want to do is I want to show you a couple of scriptures And I want to see if you, being detectives, spot the same thing that I spotted. And if you're intrigued by the same thing that intrigued me. So we're going to pick it up in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week. So the Sabbath in the Jewish culture is Saturday, right? It runs from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. So when Matthew says it was after the Sabbath, it was at dawn on the first day of the week. He's talking Sunday morning. He's talking this morning. That's why we celebrate Easter Sunday on Easter Sunday. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. I feel sorry for the other Mary. Like, you don't get a last name. You're just like the other Mary. Can you imagine, like, the disciples hanging out? What did you guys do on Friday night? Oh, we went to Mary's place. Mary Magdalene's? No, no, the other Mary. Like, it's rough, right? It's rough. There was a violent earthquake 
For an angel, turn my Bible page, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love the imagery of this. Like a stone has been rolled across the grave of Jesus. It's to try and keep him inside. It's to try and stop people getting in. It's to try and break connection between us and our Savior. And an angel comes down and just rolls it aside and then sits on it like, what you going to do about this? Like I just, I love the fact that the angel does it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. That's a very uh, creative way of saying they passed out. They fainted. They took one look at the angel and they're like, gone. The angel said to the women, note, the women did not faint. The women, the women were fine. I mean, they were a little bit shaken, but all the guys were just like, And you can see the woman just like stepping over their bodies. Do not be afraid, the angel said to the woman, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Isn't that like the most boss way to end some instructions? Like now I have told you. I read it during the week. I thought, that's so cool. I'm going to try that. During the week, my wife said to me, what do you want for dinner? I said, I'd like this for dinner. Now I have told you. Then I decided I would not say that ever again. <laughs> didn't, didn't have the same effect as I, as I thought it might do. So the women hurried away from the tomb and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Who thinks maybe they spotted something that made them go, That's a bit odd. All right, Pete down the back. Pete's a scholar. He probably knows what I'm talking about anyway. All right, it's okay. It's just the first one. But we're going to jump over now to Mark. All right, Mark is another guy that wants to tell us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, so that's the other Mary. Mary's the mother of James. And Salome, which is another woman that you don't hear about in the Bible too often, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter. I love that that the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter. Because who can remember what Peter did when Jesus was being held for trial? He denied him. Three times somebody said to Peter, who was kind of lurking in the background watching what was going on with Jesus, hey, you were one of his followers, right? And three times Jesus, uh, Peter says, nah, no, I wasn't. Just, you're crazy. I got nothing to do. Like fully just pretended I don't even know the guy. 
And then when he realized what he'd done, the Bible says he went outside and he wept bitterly. And I, you can't prove it, but doesn't this read like Peter had cut himself off from the rest of the disciples? Doesn't this read that Peter went, you know what, I'm, I'm not worthy to be called. You guys, I, I let him down so badly. I can't be a part of this community of believers anymore. How many times do we do that? How many times do we go, man, I can't, I can't go to church. I can't be around other Christians. If they knew what I'd done this week, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go down well. And we make the decision to exclude ourselves based on how we feel we've acted. We say, man, if you guys knew you know, what I'd done, who I'd been with, what I'd watched, what I'd drunk, what I'd smoked, whatever, and we excommunicate ourselves before anyone else has the chance to hurt our feelings. And I think Peter's done that. And I love the fact the angel says, hey, go tell the disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Anyone else feel like maybe they've got a bit, oh, there's another hand going up. Okay, maybe I've spotted something. Your hand's always up, mate, because it's in a cast, right? So you just look like you've got like a permanent question. Every time, every time I look over, I want to be like, yes. All right, I'm going to make it a little bit easier for you. Let's bounce back to a period of time just before Jesus was arrested when he's in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples and he's telling them what's about to happen. And so if we bounce back to Mark chapter 14, Jesus says this, you will fall away. This is just before the soldiers arrive to take him away. He says, you will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's talking about a prophecy that was given by a prophet called Zechariah who was talking about what would happen when Jesus was arrested, that all of his disciples would bolt, which is literally what, what happened. In fact, Mark, church tradition holds, the Bible talks in another place that one of the followers of Jesus was just wearing like an overcoat with like nothing underneath. And as they ran away, someone grabbed it and tore it off him and he ended up having to run away buck naked. I had a massive conversation with someone once about whether it was buck naked or butt naked. I still don't know what the correct way to say that is. But just quick poll, who thinks it's buck naked? And who thinks it's butt naked? Whoa, man. I bet you buck naked people feel pretty stupid now. Like well and truly over, overvoted, right? And so, but tradition holds that it was Mark who wrote this gospel that was the young man that, that ran away with no clothes on. So Jesus said, hey, you're gonna be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That's how Mark records it. Who thinks maybe they've got a bit more of a clue? Let me give you one more. Matthew tells a similar story in 26, and it is in Matthew chapter 26. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Let me condense these four stories for you. Both Matthew and Mark say that before Jesus was arrested, he made a point of telling his disciples, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. When the angel on the rock sees the women, he says, go quickly, tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. When they bump into Jesus, he says, don't be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Mark says that when they walked into the tomb and there was an angel sitting on the right-hand side, he said, Tell his disciples and Peter is going ahead of you into Galilee. Who thinks they can pick up the theme now? I read this during the week. I'm like, why? 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 Why is Jesus so determined? 
to get a message to his disciples, you have to meet me in Galilee. Everything that's just happened has happened in Jerusalem. Galilee is three to four days walk from Jerusalem. It would make far more sense for Jesus to meet his disciples where they are all at, not ask them to walk three or four days away and then meet them there. Now, when you read your Bible with curiosity, that bugs you. I want you to picture for a moment, just put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. So the disciples are ordinary guys, uneducated, unqualified, just plain folk. They lived in Galilee. They were born in Galilee. They grew up in Galilee. They went to school in Galilee. They didn't, uh, you know, distinguish themselves in any way at school. And they went into working for their parents. You've got fishermen. You've got laborers. You've got stonemasons. They're all blue-collar workers. Maybe Matthew as a tax collector is the exception. But everybody else, they're just salt-of-the-earth guys. Galilee's not a big place. Like a country guy just doing their thing. And then Jesus comes along and he scoops them up and they start this amazing adventure that goes on for three and a half years. And at the start, it must have been so exciting and so encouraging and just blown their minds, miracles and healings and teachings from Jesus. But as the three and a half years go on, I think it would have become a bit of a grind. The whirlwind would have got faster and faster. The intensity would have got more and more. Like just the, uh, you know, the microscope that they were under, all of a sudden now they can't go anywhere. Anytime they go anywhere, there's thousands of people following them. They're cutting holes in roofs to try and get to Jesus. You know, they're being accused of heresy and they've got religious leaders watching the every move. They've got political people coming to them and saying, hey, are you going to raise up an army? It must have got really intense. And then they find themselves ultimately in the big smoke in Jerusalem at a time of year where it's just exploded in size. It's just noise and sound and cacophony and they're bumping elbows with people. And then to top it all off, the guy that they've put their hope in and their faith in has just been executed. And then they find out that they have been accused of stealing his body and that they are being hunted. And if they are caught, they'll be thrown in prison or worse. And so the Bible tells us that they end up in a room in Jerusalem hiding with the doors locked. That's what it's come to. They don't know which way is up. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what to do next. So many questions, so few answers. And into that environment, just picture this, the Marys... Mary Magdalene and the other one, they come barging in late Sunday morning and they are hysterical. They cannot be calmed down. They just, they're so excited. And the disciples are like, dude, what's, what's, what's going on? Just stop. And they're like, ah, 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 we saw Jesus. Jesus is alive. He's come back. He's come back from the dead. We saw him and we saw angels. There's an angel on the rock. There was an angel inside. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like you can imagine what that would be like. And the disciples say, well, what did he say? Ah, oh, he stopped us and he gave us a message for you. Ah, oh, what did he say? Did he tell us, is he raising an army? Has he got some plans? Like, where are we going? What's happening? Yes, he said, ah, what was it? He said, meet him in Galilee. All right, what else did he say? Ah, nothing. What do you mean nothing? He didn't, any, nope, nothing. No other instructions, just meet him in Galilee. Oh, that's, okay, well, what else happened? Did you talk to the angel? yes. We talked to the angel. There was an angel on the rock. Oh my gosh, all the guys fainted. Bunch of wimps. But we were okay. We were a little bit afraid, but we didn't pass out or anything. And the angel on the rock, he gave us a message to give you as well. Did he? Yes. What was his message? Oh, his message was, he said, go back, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Well, what else did he say? Ah, nothing. You can see the disciples like, what? 
Did you say there was another? Yes, there was another angel in the tomb. He was sitting on the right-hand side. He was a very nice-looking young man. And he gave us a message for you and for Peter. Ah, oh, we've got to go tell Peter. Well, before you go tell Peter, what was his message? Ah, oh, he said, um, what was it? He said, yes, meet him in Galilee. What else did he say? Ah, nothing. Does it not seem to you like Jesus was absolutely determined to meet them in Galilee? And so the question I asked myself all week, I'll get the band to jump up because we're almost done. The question I asked myself all week was, why? Why did Jesus want the disciples to meet him in Galilee? What was so special about Galilee? It's three or four days away. It's a big effort. Like walking for four days is tiring. I get tired at the end of Sunday from just walking from here to here, like half an hour. And if I had a title for this morning's message, I think it would be an invitation for you from Jesus, and it would simply be, meet me at Galilee. Because as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know what Galilee was? was where it all started. It was where it all began. It's where Peter was fishing, where he couldn't catch anything. And Jesus showed up on the Sea of Galilee, right on the edge. And he said to Peter, hey, have you caught anything? And Peter's like, nah, bro. He said, chuck your net down. Have one more go. And Peter says, look, I don't even know who you are, but sure, why not? Puts his net down and it gets so filled with fish that the net begins to break. The boat starts sinking. That's where it happened. It happened in Galilee. It's where he called James and John. When he performed his first miracle in Cana where he turned water into wine, that was right in the middle of Galilee. It's where he launched his ministry. It all happened in Galilee. And it must have hiding in a locked room, fearing for your life after the craziness of the last three and a half years. Galilee must have felt so long ago. And it must have seemed like so simple. Have you ever said to yourself, man, life was so simple back then. And so the disciples go back to Galilee and we pick up the story in John chapter 21. It says that Peter was there, Nathaniel was there, Thomas was there, James and John were there and a couple of other disciples. So maybe seven of them all together. And they're just waiting. Like, well, we don't know what, what we're doing here. There's a bit of stuff that happened between the women coming back and the guys ending up there. It was probably about 10 days, a couple of weeks later, but they finally got themselves there. And they're just kicking around going, well, this is where he told us to meet him. And it must have been a very, I think, a very calming environment after the craziness of being in Jerusalem and just the cacophony of sound and noise and the distraction to then just be standing on the side of a lake where they grew up, where they met Jesus. And eventually Peter says, you know what, I, I got it. Who knows how long this will be? I got to do something, let's go fishing. And all the other disciples say, yeah, well, let's just go fishing. We might as well fish while we wait. And they hop on a boat, and they push out, and they're fishing, and they can't catch nothing. Does that sound familiar? Like they're fishing, they're fishing, catching nothing. There's like seven full-time qualified fishermen, pretty much, catching nothing. And then Jesus arrives on the edge of the lake. 
And he calls out to them, hey, have you caught anything? This is like exactly how it happened three and a half years ago. And the guys don't recognize him and they say, no, we haven't caught anything. And Jesus says, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? That is a dumb idea. That's not how fish work. There's not like a whole bunch of fish on one side of the boat. You know, like fish move around, man, like they swim. If you're not catching anything on one side, just flipping it to the other side is not going to make much difference. But they go, okay. So they chuck it on the other side of the boat. And of course, they get so much fish that they can't even handle it. And at that point, John goes, wait a minute. I've seen this before. I re- this is, I've experienced this experience. And John goes, it's flipping Jesus. Paraphrase. And Peter, who is so desperate to see him again. I love Peter. He just, he jumps out. He's like, I can't even wait. The Bible says that they were about 90 meters. So like less than a football field end to end away from the shore. And Peter just jumps in the water and just guns it for Jesus. And the disciples come back and Jesus has made a fire for them. And they sit down and it's in that context that Jesus says, hey, this is, this is the plan. This is what things are gonna look like moving forward. This is my purpose for you. This is what I want you to do. He had to take them out of the craziness, take them back to where it started. And the reason I felt to talk about that this morning is because I just really felt that there's an invitation for us this morning as we remember Jesus' resurrection, that He's saying to each of us, hey, meet me at Galilee. Come back with me to where it all started. You remember making that decision to follow Jesus. Some of you will have a really clear, I talk to some people and they're like, it was this date. It was at this event. This is when the decision was made. Other people like me probably can't pinpoint it to a date. Like I got brought up in a Christian home. So it just kind of developed over time. But I still have marker points along the way, anchor points that I can go back to and say, this was a transformational experience for me. I think in this season that what God is saying to us is like, hey, I want you to step back from the noise, step back from the hustle, step back from the distraction. So much distraction going around. There's so much noise going around. There's so much sound. And he's saying, I want you to step back from that and come meet me where it all began. I want you to close your eyes just for a moment. And just ask yourself, if you're someone, and I appreciate that there's going to be people here that maybe this doesn't apply to, and I'll give you an opportunity to respond to something a little bit different soon. But if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to cast your mind back. What is my Galilee? Where did it start for me? When it was simple. And you weren't trying to earn relationship, you weren't trying to prove anything. He just came to you and accepted you just the way you were. You know, the crazy thing about being a Christian is that we all agree that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love. And then we bust our chops trying to do exactly that. We're going to take communion in just a minute. 
In fact, let's, let's do that now. Why don't you just, if you can, stand to your feet. Just go down to the back. We've got a couple of tables, one on the right and one on the left. Don't drink it or eat anything yet, but just go grab the elements, so like the little cup and a bit of bread, and then bring it back. And I'll explain to you how we're going to do things. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't feel comfortable doing that, that's fine. That's not a problem. I appreciate that there's all different people. We've got a lot of guests here, and I don't know your story. So if you don't want to do that, that's okay. You're more than welcome to just sit there quietly and observe. If you've never done it before and you don't know if it applies to you, I'm equally comfortable with you going for it. I know there are some churches that would say, oh, you know, unless you've got a genuine, authentic relationship with God, you can't take communion. But the way I see it, Judas took communion right before he betrayed Jesus. So he wasn't in a great space and Jesus didn't stop him. I don't know if that's good theology or not, Gene. I'm just saying, if you want to be a part of it, then be a part of it. So most of you will know this, but some of you might not. But communion is, is something that Jesus taught us to do. He, he walked his disciples through the process just before he was led away and executed. And he said it like this. He said, hey, when you, when you drink, just imagine that you're drinking you know, a part of me. He says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. When he was crucified, he shed his blood for us. It was a bloody process. And so when we drink the drink, we just do it in remembrance of the blood that he shed. And then he tore off some bread, and we have bread, and we have crackers, and we've got gluten-free options, which wasn't something Jesus was too phased about at the time. Although I think perhaps maybe unleavened bread is gluten-free. I don't know. <laughs> he said, hey, take this bread in remembrance of you know, me giving my body that was broken. And so periodically in church, that's, that's what we do. And even outside of church in our homes, we will stop and we will just remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. We do it all, all through the year, but especially we do it on Sunday morning because this is the weekend that we remember what Jesus did. But what I want you to do this morning is I just want you to hold that moment, that Galilee experience for yourself. And as you take the drink and you take the bread or the cracker and you remember what he did and you say thank you to him for what he did I want you to just picture yourself back again where you were at the start and allow him to just minister to you very good, just in your own time, there's no rush yeah, Heavenly Father we thank you God that Lord, we just thank you for your love and your mercy, your compassion, your kindness. Father, that you gave your son to die on a cross 
pay the price for our sins, for our mistakes, God, our errors. You resurrected again on the third day. You conquered death. You sit on the right hand of the Father, Jesus. You gave us the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for it this morning. We thank you for your victory. We thank you that you have, for some crazy reason, entrusted us with your message. God, I pray a blessing on every single person here that you would meet them at Galilee. And just before we move on and and sing a song, I want to acknowledge that there may be people here this morning, there may be people watching online. You don't have a Galilee experience because you haven't encountered Jesus yet. If there's one thing that I want you to take away from this morning, because I reckon it's a weird thing if you don't know Jesus to walk into a church and sit down and hear an Easter message and drink red drink and have a bit of bread. It's a bit strange. Watch a sweaty pastor talk about stuff. But if you're watching this morning or you're in the room, what I want you to understand is that God loves you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. He has you know, a purpose for your life. There is meaning to your being. There's significance to your existence. He created you. And then He entered the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And even though all of us reject God at times, even once we make a decision to follow Him, we reject Him at times. Even though we push Him away, and even though we build walls up between ourselves and God, we use building blocks of guilt and shame and pain and arrogance and pride and ego and all of these things that we put up to try and stop God getting close to us. In spite of all of that, He came and He died on a cross. And like I said at the start, I think the reasonable response to that information is to go, well, I have a bunch of questions. I think that's great. I think that's that's normal. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you came with someone this morning, afterwards, just say to them, hey, I, I have questions about that. Why, why do you believe that? Well, come and see me. And say, why do you believe that? Where is that coming from? But don't leave this morning and just go, well, that was nice. Ask the questions.